I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open up to John 14. We're back in our study. At, uh, at the end of December, I, uh, I have a, a new Bible that was finally delivered. I had pre-ordered it. It's a new copy of the, the, the Legacy Standard uh, translation. And I have a problem with new Bibles because I have to mark them up. And uh, I'm one of those quirky people that likes to, to underline and color code things and, and do all of that. But I also I've learned from many Bibles in the past. You ever done that? You've you highlighted something and later on you're like, why did I highlight that? And I just I just went at it with a with a, uh, a yellow highlight. And now I regret that. And it's uh, so I, I tend to want to make out a, a plan before I put pen uh, to, to paper. And uh, I think. And one of the things that I wanted to, to begin to highlight in this uh, Bible uh, is that throughout Scripture, what I've come to notice is at times there are these really uh, succinct uh, theological maxims uh, that, that tend to, to stick with us. It's a, very, it's a, it's a whole bunch of theology uh, in, in a small sentence, and usually it's kind of mentioned as, uh, as an aside in uh, the, the prophets or... Uh, the apostles will be speaking about something else, and then they'll just say, oh, because of this. And you're like, but that was a really big statement that you, that you made, uh, and it, it has a ton of implications. And that's usually what they do, is they, they'll make, they're uh, applying Scripture, and then they'll qu- br- very briefly mention uh, the principle that they are applying. Take, take for instance, a, a very well-known maxim uh, from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then here's this little theological maxim. He says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. How often have you used that or thought about that? Uh, how, long, how often has that been spoken of? But the Apostle Paul just mentions it in, in passing and uh, moving on. And he's, he's talking about something else. And then he just alludes to it. And you're like, but wait a second. Can we go back and talk about that uh, for a bit? And... Uh, Thinking it, uh, about this this passage, and uh, as we walk through, uh, you know, the, the Gospel of John, that, that you and I—that is our testimony. That's our that's our current life and our future hope. That that what we are, uh, we, the way that we live now, is by faith, and that one day uh, we will get to see and behold uh, the risen Christ in heaven. I love the final verse of a, another song: uh, "Jesus, I my cross have taken." And, and the final verse says, haste then on from grace to glory, armed by faith and winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal days before thee, God's own hand shall guide me there. And soon shall uh, close thy earthly mission, and swift shall pass thy pilgrim days. Hope shall change to glad fruition, faith to sight and prayer to praise. And, and I love those words, and, and that is our uh, human experience. For all of those who have uh, lived uh, uh, after uh, the death of Christ, that, that is our experience. But, but have you ever thought about or realized what it was like for those who walked with Jesus upon the earth? We live by faith, and then it eventually turns into sight, but they initially lived by sight that had to turn into faith. Uh, and we are on the, the precipice of that transition here in John 14, uh, because uh, the the teacher, the, the the Lord, the Master that the disciples have been following for the last three and a half years uh, on the earth, 
uh, he, he's just dropped a bomb on them. Uh, he's just told them in this upper room uh, discourse in John 13 through 16, he's just said, I'm going away. Uh, and th- this is the beginning of a new uh, season for them. And uh, that transition is, is rather shocking to them. And, and I'm not sure that we really fully comprehend how difficult of a transition that would have been for them. Uh, to, to transition from uh, seeing all of the, the miracles that Jesus performed and hearing all of his uh, amazing teaching with their own ears. Uh, and then transitioning into, wait, you're, you're leaving me? And, and why are you leaving? Later on, Jesus is going to say, it's good that he goes. And we're in this, uh, this upper room discourse. This is uh, kind of the, the last words from Jesus to uh, the 11 disciples. And it's 11 right now, but at the beginning of the chapter, uh, it was all 12. And if you remember, uh, Jesus got up and did what nobody else in that room wanted to do. He got up and he washed the feet of the 12 disciples when it should have been one of them who got up and and washed the feet. Jesus, uh, the greatest among them, did the the lowest job. He humbled himself and then said, you need to go and do likewise. He washed their feet and then he predicted that uh, there was going to be one among them who would betray him. And that was, uh, he didn't identify it fully to the whole group, but he identified uh, who the betrayer was to, uh, to John the Apostle, the author of this gospel. So he identifies Judas, and then Judas departs. Uh, and then Jesus drops th- that bomb that he's going to leave. He's going to depart, and they couldn't follow after him. And Peter says, no, I'm, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I, I will go wherever you go, even to death. And then bomb number two uh, was that the leader of the, the twelve... Uh, Peter would actually deny Jesus before sunrise. So they're, they're kind of dominoes are, are clicking down here, uh, and each of them is, is rattling the room. Then beginning in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus is going to begin to, to encourage his disciples. He sees that they are shaken, that they are worried and, and anxious and, and fearful, and he's going to try to instill some, some faith and trust and hope in them just before his arrest and crucifixion and departure. If you remember verse 1, so he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And that's going to be the recurring theme here in chapter 14. Jesus is going to be uh, reminding them, encouraging them to believe and to trust. Even though he's just about to, to go away from them, what do they need to continue to do? They need to continue to trust in him and believe in him, even as they had when he was there with them. In verses 2 and 3, he pointed to the future home that they have in heaven. And he promised that he would return for them after he had prepared a place for them. In verse 4, Jesus assured them that they knew the way to where he was going. And then, slow to believe, Thomas asked another question that everybody else was thinking. He says, actually, uh, Jesus, we don't know uh, where you are going. And because we don't know where you're going, we don't know how to get to where you're going. Then Jesus responded, 14.6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus uh, says he is what they need to know. They don't need to know the way. They need to know Christ. 
And then that brings us to our, our study this morning, verses 7 through 14, as Jesus continues to try and encourage uh, these uh, 11 fearful and confused disciples. And he's going to, he's going to explain to them in these verses what, what is going to be the outcome uh, if they truly look to him in faith, if they trust Jesus uh, as they have when he was there with him, uh, if they carry on that faith as he departs from them, what will happen? They're facing this time of, of sudden change, and they're really going to be with Jesus just for a, a couple more hours before uh, he is arrested and taken away. But they still have to trust that he will care for them and be with them even after he departs. Well, let's read these verses together, beginning in verse 7. It says, If you have come to know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you know him. And have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you all so long, and have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak from myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I will go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pause and pray. Almighty God, we... We are amazed at all that you are, at all that you have done, all that you are planning to do in the future. Lord, so often so many of us have, uh, have had that desire, that, that, that uh, profession that Philip made. Show us the Father. Show us your glory. We long to know you more. We long to know you more intimately. But we see here that we we do that by coming to know your son. And we come to know your son uh, by how you have revealed him to us through your written word. So bless our time in your word now. Grant us understanding and insight and wisdom. Show us how your truth needs to transform our lives. May we submit to your word and may we become more and more like our Lord and Savior. And it is in his name that we pray. You and I often fit that same description of these disciples here in the upper room. We are often fearful that we are often confused. We could say that faith is simple, but it is not easy, right? It It is easy. Oftentimes we know what we need to do. We need to trust. We need to believe in Christ. We need to trust him in the middle of all circumstances. But all too often we fear men rather than fearing God. And all too often we are confused and and unsettled uh, and anxious about our circumstances. And rather than than trusting, uh, we are trembling. 
But what would actually happen if we did trust God? What, what would take place in our lives? What would, we, what would happen if we strive to live by faith and not by sight? If, if we walk by faith, trusting in who Jesus is and all that he has done and accomplished on our behalf, uh, then we will uh, experience three promises. Uh, and Jesus outlines those three promises here. These are three promises that he gives to the disciples. And, and the first promise that he gives to the disciples to try and encourage them towards faith is found in verses 7 through 11. Uh, he gives them the promise of knowing God. Uh, and it, at the beginning of verse 7 begins with a, a little word, if. If you have come to know me, you will know my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. There's a lot here in this verse. And beginning with that if, we could take Jesus' words here in, in one of two different ways. He could be saying this uh, as, a, as a reproof, kind of, if only you had known me. Or this could be read as, a, as an assurance that if you have known me, uh, the Father will know you. And I think uh, as you look at the, the flow of the passage, I think in verse 7, uh, it's an assurance. I think in verse 9, then there's kind of a little bit of a rebuke and some heartache as Jesus speaks to the, in, in response to Philip's question in verse 8. But in verse 7, there's some profound uh, truth. He says, if you have known him, uh, if you have known Christ, uh, and the, the way that the, the Greek is written there, it's pointing to having known him in the past. If, if the disciples have come to know him through his earthly ministry at this point in time, then they will know God, future tense, uh, and they will come to know God the Father. And uh, then he says, and you uh, and from now on, you know him. And the idea there is actually something that begins there and continues to grow. So having known the son, you will also know the father and you will continue to grow in knowledge of the father. And uh, you, the last statement that he says, and you have seen him. What's interesting there is he talks about that as past tense. Basically, if you have seen and beheld Jesus, then you have seen and beheld God the father. And this leads Philip to ask that question, to, to make that request. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And, and Philip probably has in mind uh, a, a big theophany. His question is, is similar to Moses' question in Exodus 33, uh, where Moses says, God, show me your glory. Let me behold your glory. Similar to what I, Isaiah, Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6, when he beholds the, the throne room of God in heaven. That's really what Philip is, is asking for uh, and expecting. Uh, and and Jesus' response uh, it, to that in verses 9 and 10, again, I, I think they're spoken with some sadness. Now, like, Philip, ha have you not been, been listening? You've been walking with me for, for three and a half years. Uh, and have you not realized who, who you are walking with fully and, and completely? And the disciples have, have been with Jesus for a long time. Uh, but they still have not fully grasped the truth about him. They have believed uh, and trusted in him as the Messiah, and they understand that he's the, the Son of God. But, but what they don't fully understand is that he is equal uh, with God, and he is united with God the Father. Uh, and uh, as one pastor put it, that their theology was accurate, but it was incomplete. Uh, they have the right idea, but a, a missing component to who Jesus is. 
And Jesus assures the disciples of the unity that exists between uh, the Father and the Son. Again, seeing and, and knowing Jesus is the same as seeing and knowing the Father. And we can't see the Father because he's, He is Spirit, but, but we can see and behold His Son. Uh, and the, the words which Jesus spoke and the works which Jesus performed, those were coming uh, through Him from God the Father. And that, that's the unity that there is on display uh, in the incarnation of Christ. Uh, and the disciples' knowledge of Jesus and of the Father uh, will be really complete uh, at his crucifixion and his resurrection. Right? At this point in time, they don't fully understand everything. And uh, again, later on, very famous passage with, with, as I like to call him, slow to believe Thomas rather than doubting Thomas. We've got we to safeguard the name of Thomas here. But slow to believe Thomas initially doubted. He says, I won't fully believe that Jesus has, has risen from the dead until I, I touch his side and I see the scars. And uh, then when, when Jesus finally appears to Thomas and, and Thomas sees and beholds him, and then he doesn't say, well, can I touch the scar? Can I do this? But his proclamation shows that he is fully convinced now, and he's come to the proper conclusion about who Jesus is. He says in twenty twenty eight, my Lord and my God. See, at that point, he fully understands. And that's really when the revelation of Christ to the world is complete, after he has been crucified and resurrected. And in, in verse 11, Jesus commands them, Again, to believe, and, and really, 11 is going to echo a lot of what he says in verse 1. Verse 1, he said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 11, he says, believe in me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. They understand and believe that the Son is united with the Father and equal with the Father, or understand and believe based upon the, the works and, and jesus is pointing to the, the body of evidence that he has been laboring over the course of his ministry to, to prove and to demonstrate not only to these disciples but to the entire uh, watching world the, the miraculous signs that john records in his gospel are intended to communicate uh, the deity of christ that he is fully god uh, and this is seen throughout the gospel, but if you remember back to John uh, chapter 9, in which uh, Jesus uh, healed the man who had been blind from birth. And this is, this is the words and the assessment of that uh, blind man as, as he is making a profession about Christ. And the Pharisees are like, well, we don't know who he is. Uh, and the blind man who sees Jesus clearly, and the Pharisees are blind to who Jesus is, the, the man who was born blind says, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. No one has ever done that in the history of humanity. In John 11, Jesus reanimates Lazarus from the dead after three days in the tomb. Remember, I think it was, was Martha who comes up to, to Jesus and says, I don't think you want to do this. He's going to smell. It's going to be really, really bad if you pull him out. And Jesus says, no, Lazarus, come forth. Nobody else does that. To quote another gospel, Luke 8.25, after Jesus calms the winds and, and the waves on, on the, the storm on the Sea of Galilee, this is the, the question that the disciples ask. Says they were fearful and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Right? 
They're asking that question and wondering that, but this is not a, a mere human being. Nobody is able to, to control creation except the creator. And then John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, really the, the purpose statement for John's gospel. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus is commanding the disciples and every person who reads this gospel, indeed all people everywhere, to look to Jesus in faith, to know Jesus. Indeed, without faith in Jesus and knowing Christ, you cannot know God. Now, that was the statement that Jesus made in 14.6, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then that second statement that the world hates, no one, an exact number, no one comes to God the Father except through Him. Without knowing Jesus, you cannot know God. And if you do not know God, you'll be lost and adrift in this world. I love this quote from J.I. Packer. He gives this illustration in his book, Knowing God. Just knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives, as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London and put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or of England to fend for himself. And so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. And disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfold, as it were, with no sense of direction, with no understanding of what surrounds you. And this way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. The only way to know God is to know Christ, to see and behold Christ. And if you see and behold Christ, you are seeing and beholding, and you will know God the Father. A little bit later in this gospel, as Jesus is going to, to pray to the Father in chapter 17, what is known as the high priestly prayer, this, this is how Jesus de- describes eternal life. John 17:3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's how Jesus describes eternal life. It's a knowledge of God through the one whom he has sent, his son. Now, some of you here may be thinking, yeah, yeah, pastor. I I know God. I have been attending church all my life for years and years. And I know about God. But but I would say that that is one of the most dangerous trains of thought that we can adopt in our own hearts and minds. Because you can know truths about God without truly knowing God. The the Pharisees knew more truth about God than probably any of us. But they did not know God. As as we've been reading through uh, the book of Hosea uh, this month, What's amazing, in in Hosea chapter 2, verse 20, uh, the the second line of that verse, uh, he's he's speaking about future Israel being betrothed to God. And and Hosea the prophet says, then you will know Yahweh. The implication is, right now, they don't know Yahweh. 
even though if you asked a Jew or an Israelite at that time, who's Yahweh? They would give you information. But, but they don't truly know the Lord. And Hosea is speaking to, the, to this nation that's in covenant relationship with God, and yet they don't truly know God. Now, we went through the book of Jeremiah in uh, the equipping hour this morning, and one, one of the new covenant promises that, that's laid out in Jeremiah 31, 34, is that they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh. So notice, at that point in time, they were calling uh, each other to know God. But he says, In the future, you won't need to do that, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. If you ever read uh, the book of Ezekiel, right? Everyone's favorite book. Uh, But over and over again in that book, uh, Ezekiel says, and then they will know Yahweh. And sometimes uh, it's a word of judgment against Gentile nations who don't know the Lord. uh, But it is most frequently used to describe Israel. That they don't know him now, but they will know him in the future. And Jesus is exhorting these 11 disciples to believe in him truly and completely. Believing that he is united with and equal to God the Father. And here's, the, here's where this is important for you and I. Okay, if, if these 11 disciples in the upper room who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, if Jesus, if his final words to them, he's going to be emphasizing, what do they need to do? They need to believe him. They need to trust him. They need to walk with him in faith. If that was Jesus' message to them on the eve of his departure, how much more do you and I need those same words of encouragement? And again, I know you've heard that before. I'm not saying something that's brand new to you. I'm saying something that is simple, but it is not easy. And we need that reminder to continue on, to press on in faith. What do you need to remind yourself each and every day? How should you live? Not by sight, but by faith. Trusting in Christ, relying upon Him rather than in your own wisdom, your own works, your own efforts. This is also important because we need to continually strive to study and to know Christ. And as we study to know Christ, we will uh, grow also in the knowledge of God the Father. Indeed, Jesus says that we will behold the Father as we come to know Him. Love it, one of the Puritans. John Flavel says, he says, The study of Jesus Christ is the noblest subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. The angels stoop to look into this deep abyss. The truths discovered in Christ are the secrets that from eternity lay hid in the bosom of God. And I love this. Studying Christ stamps a heavenly glory upon the contemplating soul. Studying Christ stamps a heavenly glory upon the contemplating soul. May we always and ever be studying and growing in our knowledge of Christ. Because we have to continue to grow in knowledge. And this is what we talk about so frequently uh, every single week in our growth groups, right? That, That KFCA cycle. Knowledge leads to faith, leads to a transformation of our character, and then leads to action. But we have to be growing in knowledge. You won't believe what you don't yet know. So as you grow in knowledge and then you appropriate faith to what you are learning, then you will be transformed. That is what Christ is is laying out here and what he is encouraging the disciples. 
That as they grow in the knowledge of Christ, they will see God the Father. As they apply faith, uh, then they will be transformed. That's that growing knowledge of God. So Jesus promises that all who know and trust in him will know and behold God the Father. Then he makes a second promise. The promise of, of greater works in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, he, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Now this verse uh, begins with an introductory phrase, one that we are, we're, we're probably so familiar with it that we kind of t- tend to skip right over it. Right? Truly, truly, I say to you. Uh, and when Jesus uses this, he's, he's introducing something that is important, something that is significant. And that phrase alerts us to the weightiness of what he is about to say. And once again, he emphasizes the importance of faith. He says, he who believes in me. That, that is what he's trying to, to pound into the 11 disciples. They need to trust. They need to believe in him. Then he, he gives this promise, and it really comes in two stages. The first part of it is that the works that, that Jesus uh, has done the works that I do, he will do also. That's the first portion of it. And then the second portion is the greater and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. And then Jesus, yeah, that, that last statement in, in the verse explains how it's possible for those who believe to do greater works than, than Jesus. It is because he is leaving and going to the Father. And when Jesus leaves and departs, he's going to be sending the Spirit. And the Spirit is going to be mentioned in the very next passage, in verse 16 and beyond. He's going to be that, that advocate, that helper that Jesus is going to send uh, to, to be with the disciples. Now, now, but what does all of this mean? Now, is Jesus saying that, that you and I and every person who has uh, followed after him will be able to do exactly the same miracles, right? Are, are you able to, uh, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, and, and to walk on water? And there are, there are some who point to this passage and say every believer has the power to perform miracles. Every believer uh, has that uh, promise. And uh, I think in making that claim, there, there are many who, who abuse the word of God and they, they abuse the people of God. Uh, in, in making that claim. There's a, a very well-known uh, church in Redding, California, Bethel Church, probably the most prominent church with a, a false theology built upon this. And, and this is where you begin to see that theology matters. Like what you believe, you are slowly going to begin to apply. Back in, in December of 2019, one of the, the music leaders of the, the church had a, a two-year-old daughter who, who died suddenly. And the music leader posted about her daughter's death on Instagram. And she, she requested that people would pray for her daughter to be resurrected. Here's the, the wording of the post. She says, we're, we're asking for prayer. We believe in a Jesus who died and conclusively defeated every grave. Holding the keys to resurrection power. We need it for our little girl. I don't want to mention names. We are asking for bold, unified prayers from the global church to stand with us in belief that he will raise this little girl back to life. And her time here is not done, and it is our time to believe boldly with confidence uh, wield that King, what, to wield what King Jesus paid for. It's time for her to come to life. And after five days, they realized that she wasn't coming back. They decided to have a, 
memorial service for their their daughter and and i mentioned that and my, and my heart breaks i mean reading that that story just uh, i can't imagine what it is like to lose uh, a two-year-old daughter uh, and my heart breaks over the loss of their child but it also breaks uh, over the the false teaching in that that has captured hearts and minds and you imagine what what would those five days have been like Right? Thinking somehow you would have the, the power to bring your, your little girl back. It's been said that ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And I say even more so for bad theology. That giving people false hope and, and promising things that you can never be delivered. And if, if this verse is, is not teaching that every Christian has, has the, the ability to perform miracles, then what in the world is it saying? Well, let's take this one bite at a time and strive to figure this out. First, let's keep in mind who Jesus is speaking to in the immediate context. The immediate context of, of the upper room discourse is the 11 disciples. Uh, and uh, these, these apostles, these sent ones, they have been walking with him. Uh, for uh, his earthly ministry, and they have already actually been commissioned. Uh, they have already performed miracles. Uh, Jesus sent out his disciples in, in Matthew 10, in Mark 6, and Luke 10, and he commissioned them to cast out demons and heal the sick. And, and they come back, uh, and they actually realized they weren't able to, to cast out some demons. So they, they were delegated authority by Christ, but they couldn't do even everything that Christ could do. They didn't even, they didn't even accomplish the miracles that Christ accomplished. And these 11 disciples are going to do some of the same miracles that Jesus performed uh, during their ministry in the, in the book of Acts. They are, they're going to cast out demons. They're going to heal the sick. And they're going to actually even raise the dead. Those 11 are going to do the same miracles that Jesus did. But their miracles don't attain to the same level of Christ. So that's the, the first thing that we need to keep in mind. Second, when Jesus says that greater works than these will be done, he's speaking about quantity rather than quality of works, right? Again, there's nobody who's going to perform greater miracles than Jesus because he's Jesus, because he is fully God. But the quantity of miracles uh, in Jesus' earthly ministry were naturally limited because he, he ministered in a limited geographical area. Right? He didn't go beyond really the, the, the land of Israel. And he ministered for a, a small period of time. Right? Uh, and so when he commissions and, and sends the disciples, and when they go out in the power of the Spirit, they're going to perform those miracles, but they're not going to stay in the land of Israel. Uh, they're going to scatter around the world, and they're going to minister for a longer period of time. So quantitatively, they do more miracles and more uh, ministry than Jesus did in his three and a half years. Third, concerning how this promise has any implications for believers beyond the 11 in the upper room. Uh, the book of uh, Acts is going to describe, uh, and what we see throughout the, the, whole, the whole scripture, if you look at John 3, uh, in his conversation with Nicodemus, conversion of a soul is held up as a supernatural, miraculous act. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again from above. You can't give yourself a new heart. God has to do it. And what you're going to see as the, as the apostles go out, uh, they are going to win far more souls 
to faith in Christ than Jesus ever won during his own earthly ministry. But when Jesus died and ascended, he had maybe 500 followers. That's what we have in, in Corinthians. It records that he appeared to 500 of his followers. But on the first day of the church, when the Spirit comes upon the believers in the upper room, Peter goes out and he preaches in the temple. And how many get saved that very day? 3,000. And then by, that's Acts chapter 2. By Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says that that the number of them had increased to be about 5,000 men. So that's not numbering the women and children. So you have more in the first few days of the apostles' ministry than Christ uh, had during his entire three and a half years of ministry. More people came to believe in Christ after his death and resurrection through the ministry that Christ brought about through his apostles. This is not a promise that every believer throughout the church age will have miraculous powers and do exactly what Jesus did. This is a promise that Jesus is going to work in and through his people. Once he goes to the Father and sends the Spirit to dwell within us. That's the promise here. The church is now empowered and equipped for global ministry. But there's a a third promise here. We we are to walk in faith, and Jesus promises that we will know God, and that he will work in us and through us to do greater works. And thirdly, in verses 13 and 14, there's the promise of answered prayer. In those verses, we have a very profound promise from Jesus. But it's, a, it's another promise that has been abused significantly. It says, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In, in the modern church, many, many treat the name of Jesus as if it has a, a sort of mystical power. Uh, to grant uh, whatever we pray for, whatever we are desiring. And, and, and some have used this verse to actually teach that, that somehow if you invoke the name of Jesus, God is then obligated to give you what you want. Uh, that prosperity theology or name it and claim it. Several weeks ago, uh, you probably heard about the, the NFL player from the Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin, who in the middle of the game collapsed uh, and it, it really was shook up the the teams and they they postponed the game and eventually canceled the game and as i was looking at at sports channels and and social media after that and the, the immediate the same evening and then a few days later uh, it, it was remarkable how suddenly it was acceptable to pray i'm not complaining about that but it was remarkable it was a big change where suddenly prior to that you you couldn't pray and then suddenly i think on espn there was an actual one of the telecasters literally paused on live national television paused and prayed we're like hey that is that's awesome so i'm for that but all the time uh so can we can we do that all the time rather than just in this limited instance but uh, as i was looking through uh social media i noticed how many people were immediately lifting up uh, prayers and i did pray like it's it's okay to to pray in that instance and but it was amazing how many people were were praying for damar and for his family but then just kind of adding that little last phrase in jesus name Uh, and again i don't know that all of them were using it or abusing it but it was just remarkable how even the world around us seems to to embrace that let me just let me just offer that up or or claim it in this way and that that's just not not how jesus uh, is is presenting things here and again most often you can 
you can rebuke bad theology even just in the context of a given passage. Even in, in verse 13, we see that this idea of Jesus being a genie and invoking his name will you know, grant us our wish. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that, to what end, to what purpose? So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Not so that you will get whatever you want. Not that you obligate to anything, but so that God will be glorified through the working of His Son and the Father and the Son sending the Spirit to glorify the Son. Jesus elsewhere taught His disciples to pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your... Yeah. Right? It's not about our will and our desires. The Apostle John also clarifies this in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. But we have to ask and pray according to his will. I love the way John MacArthur summarizes this. He says, We ask God for anything that is consistent with his person, his purpose, and his perfection. So if we pray according to those three things, his purpose, his uh, person, and his perfection, God will say, I will do it. And that's amazing here. And it's not just that Jesus kind of says it will happen. Jesus says he's going to make sure who's going to do it. He says, I will do it. And he emphasizes it again in verse 14. But this is not just a a blanket answer to, to prayer. This is teaching us to align our will with God's will. It's an amazing promise, but often abused. But because it's been often abused, some of us... Uh, sometimes we, we shy away from that. And that's, a, that's a, a bad tendency. Well, if it's been abused this way, let me swing all the way over here and abuse it in another way. Because <laughs> sometimes, uh, not desiring to abuse uh, the Word of God, sometimes some of us have functionally stopped praying as we should. But we don't go to the Lord with everyday concerns. Uh, we tend to kind of be on autopilot. We tend to be dependent upon ourselves rather than upon God. And if we do not pray, we are, in essence, functionally independent from God. Now, prayer uh, is an absolute necessity in the Christian life. You could say prayer is a quiet declaration of our dependence upon God. And if that's the case, our prayerlessness is a quiet declaration of our dependence upon self. And what, what Jesus is... is assuring his disciples here and how how do you encourage faith and trust he says ask anything in accordance with my will and i'll i'll give it to you that gives hope that encourages us not only to pray but to trust encourages us to continue to know and to grow in the knowledge of okay what is god's will what should i be praying because i know if i pray in accordance with god's person and purpose and perfections then he's going to answer so I need to continue to learn and grow. And this promise is an encouragement for us to pray, and not only to pray, but to pray with confidence that our prayers will be heard and answered. 
but we don't always know if or how God will answer our prayers, right? Sometimes uh, God's, God's secret will is not what we want it to be. But uh, at other times, God, God works and answers prayers that you're like, I don't think he's going to answer. Some of you are familiar with the story of Louis Zamperini, who had an, an amazing testimony of, of answered prayer. He was, he, he was an Olympic runner at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, and then he, he served uh, in, in the Pacific Theater in World War II. And his plane w- was shot down by Japanese forces, and he and his crewmates floated on the Pacific for 47 days before they were being they were captured and eventually taken to a Japanese POW camp. But in in Laura Hillenbrand's biography of Louis Zamperini, called Unbroken, she writes this concerning his time on the raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. On the sixth day without water, the men recognized that they weren't going to last much longer. Mac was failing especially quickly. They bowed their heads together as Louis prayed. If God would quench their thirst, he vowed he'd dedicate his life to him. The next day, by divine intervention, or the, in the author adds, or the fickle humors of the tropics, I would say by divine intervention, the sky broke open and the rain poured down. And twice more the water ran out. Twice more they prayed. And twice more the rain came. And the showers gave them just enough water to last a short while longer. And sometimes we don't think that God's going to provide. Sometimes we're discouraged. We're like, I don't know how he could do this, and so I'm not even going to pray for it. But we need to pray. Prayer is that proclamation of our dependence upon God. And Jesus is calling his disciples in the upper room to trust him, to believe in him, and to believe in what will be the outcome of their faith in the practical day-to-day things. That if they trust in him, they will know God and they will grow in knowledge of God. If they trust in him, they will perform greater works to the glory of God. If they trust in him, he will answer their prayers according to his person, his purpose, and his perfections. The question is, are we willing to trust? Are we willing to believe in Christ? Are we willing to have an expectation that if we trust him, he will answer what, and give to us what he has promised? And trusting Jesus is simple, but it is not always easy. But we need to trust him. I'll close with this quote from the Puritan Thomas Lye. It says, What are the effects of a holy trust, a fervent, effectual, constant prayer to God, a sincere, universal, spiritual, cheerful, constant obedience to God? I love this. They that expect to enjoy what God promises will be sure to perform what God commands. And even now, will experience a soul-ravishing joy. If the Lord is our trust and strength, He will surely be our joy and song. Amen?